day before the while the ministers were still meeting, there was this devastating attack in Severi of the headquarters of the G5 Sahel. And you know, Mauritania actually houses the, the Secretariat of the G5 Sahel. Um, and so it is on the agenda. In fact, today that's one of the items that will be discussed. The French President Emmanuel Macron will be here for that. And so, and then there was this other attack again uh, yesterday in Gao uh, in Mali. So um, it really casts a shadow in the sense that we, one almost feels also that this, the, the massive security at this summit gives one an impression that, that this region is under siege. Um, and not that there isn't much security at other summits like in, in Addis Ababa and so on, but it seems so um, so real, the, the, the threat here and, and the reports of all the attacks just makes it, you know, I think uh, the state and so on are very nervous. And it also asks a question whether all these efforts, in terms of sending the United Nations, there are over 20,000 troops there, they've been, um, there's now the G5 Sahel Force, the Malian forces are being trained, whether they're making any headway at all against these jihadist uh, um in the Sahel region and particularly in Mali. Now, the report on peace and security on the continent was also presented to gauge the progress made in reducing armed conflicts on the continent in line with AU Master Roadmap of practical steps towards silencing the guns, which is one of the key projects of Africa's Agenda 2063. Apart from the South Sudan conflict, what else received the attention of the leaders in as far as peace and security? Security on the continent is concerned. Um, the the actual report of the Peace and Security Council is quite lengthy, and it deals with several issues, you no know, ranging from Libya, which is also a concern. There wasn't a separate meeting as we had expected on Libya, but they are. I can. I've got the document here in front of me. You know, it, it looks obviously at South Sudan and. Somalia, uh, the issues in the Great Lakes region, and then and then the Sahel. As we said, the African Union is quite thinly spread. You know, there are so many um, various terrains. Um, I think one could look at maybe the absences in a sense that I don't see Cameroon uh, being mentioned. You know, the crisis in Western Cameroon. Although Mustafa Kimahamat mentioned that in his at the opening of the, of the assembly. Just finally, before I let you go, um, after uncertainty as to the position of South Africa with regards to the free trade agreement, uh, President Ramaphosa has finally put pen to paper. This is significant. Absolutely. It's very significant. That happened yesterday. The Minister of Trade and Industry, Rob Davies, is here with a big team, and they worked uh, day and night almost to finalize all the different protocols and annexes to this agreement and to make sure, um, as they say, legal, legally scrapping it or cleaning it up so that yeah, South Africa can sign. It's very significant for South Africa and for the continent because there are more and more countries signing up. Um, okay, it doesn't mean the ratification process has got to go through Parliament and so on. And if 22 African states have ratified the, the treaty, the CFTA, um, the free trade area will enter into force. I think we're around six or so now ratified. So there is still a way to go. Um, but the fact that South Africa is now on board is very important uh, as one of the biggest con- uh, economies on the continent. Nigeria is not yet uh, signatory and some other big states, but, um, you know, it, it is moving pretty fast.
That is Lizalo Vodron, who is a consultant at the Institute for Security Studies on the line from Nuakchot, Mauritania, where the 31st African Union Summit is being held. She was talking to Kumbero Mujadare. The Democratic Republic of Congo's opposition believes President Joseph Kabila is maintaining his political future related issue as a big mystery, but he won't keep it forever. The opposition statement has followed President Kabila's weekend speech as the DRC celebrated its 58th anniversary of independence. Independence, rather, the head of state didn't mention anything about his political future. Jean-Noël Bamwenzek, a report from Kinshasa. President Joseph Kabila made his speech on Saturday as people of the Democratic Republic of Congo were celebrating the 58th anniversary of the country's independence on June 30th, 1960. A speech that was expected too much due to the current situation in connection with the electoral process underway here. As on December 23rd, the DRC has to hold the three elections including the presidential poll, the national and provincial parliamentary. And indeed, President Joseph Kabila called on Congolese to continue working according to the electoral process and demonstrated they are the only decision makers for this country's future. President Joseph Kabila. I urge you to show you are the only decision makers of this country's future and nobody else or nowhere else will make it for you. I call on both political and social actors to get fully involved in the implementation of the upcoming historical event. President Joseph Kabila's speech was broadcast on the official both radio and television. The Congolese national radio and television, well known as RTNC, but indeed, this speech was not looked at as something new for many. Most of the opposition political parties have described Mr. President's speech as a non-event as they believe he didn't bring anything new and they couldn't expect more from such a speech. What people wanted to hear from Kabila is that he's not going for another term after he concluded all his constitutional mandates, but he's maintaining a mystery around his political future, according to this former Minister of Commerce, who's also an MP from the Union for the Congolese National well known as UNC, Honorable Eme Boji. We know that his majority is doing all they can to make sure that um, the results go in their favor and that the process is not transparent. We know that. We also know that um, he is not necessarily interested in holding these elections now, despite the fact that um, um, everyone in his, in his side is saying the same. And we did not expect him to say anything about uh, his future. He has been entertaining a cloud, a mystery around this question, important question about his future. And I'm sure he's not going to say anything right up to the last minute. He has been like that. This is the way he has governed this country. He has kept a lot of mystery around his persona and his plans for the future. So I think it's a wait and see situation. He cannot hold that information forever uh, still now later people will have to know what are his real intentions people are now in a wait and see situation as this month starting to 25th candidates are called to hand their candidacies to the independent national electoral commission for the presidential election jean noel bamweze for channel africa in kinshasa free 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 Nelson Mandela.
Join Channel Africa on the 17th of July as we bring you a live broadcast of the Nelson Mandela Lecture by former U.S. President Barack Obama. Make a date with Channel Africa on the 17th of July as we celebrate Nelson Mandela's centenary birthday. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance from an African perspective. It is 17.16 Central African time right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa. South African economist David Ruud says average consumers should have a proper financial planning strategy in place in order to shield themselves from the effects of the upcoming petrol price increases. This Wednesday, motorists will start forking out more, there, more at the pumps as fuel prices are yet again set to increase. The country's Department of Energy says both grades of petrol, 93 and 95 VLP and LRP, will increase by 26 cents and 23 cents a litre respectively. It has blamed the price hike on the local currency, the RAND, which weakened during the period under review. Rod explains. Well, I'm afraid it's the, the usual culprit that can be blamed for the increase in the petrol price. The first one has to do with the exchange rate, the RAND, that weakened quite substantially. And if the RAND weakens, then of course that pushes up the local price for petrol. And the second reason has to do with the international oil price that has been relatively high. Recently, but the combination of these two effects, of course, resulted in a much higher petrol price. But there's a third reason that's also equally important, and that is that the Minister of Finance decided to increase the fuel levy quite substantially in his budget in February this year. So those three factors contributed to the much higher petrol price that we're paying today in the country. And with regards to the petrol levy, is there a possibility that government could look into this and actually take it down because we've seen how it's just um, negatively affecting uh, South Africans or it's cast on stone? Yeah, well, nearly half of what you pay for petrol goes to the state by way of the different taxes. And it's certainly possible for the Minister of Finance to decide to lower that and to reduce the petrol price in the process. Unfortunately, you will have to get the money somewhere else then. So if you can't get money from the, uh, the fuel levy, uh, then there may be another increase in the VAT rate, as an example, or an increase in personal income taxes or in company taxes. So I'm afraid there's not really much that the minister can do about this. If he reduces the fuel levy on petrol, then other taxes will have to go up, or we, the state has to spend less money on things like, for example, education. The reality is, is that the money's got to come from somewhere, and a tax on petrol is a rather easy and effective tax the Minister of Finance. And in terms of the interest rates, should we expect them to go up? We've seen how they have been going down, but now with the petrol hike, is this uh, going to change? Well, the Reserve Bank is in a much more difficult position today than, say, two or three months ago. And the reason for that has to do with recent price increases, like, for example, the various tax increases as well as increases in the form of the petrol price, as an example. And this is putting upward pressure on inflation. And inflation is likely to accelerate over the next couple of months. So the opportunity for the Reserve Bank to cut interest rates, that is certainly behind us now. And the next move by the Reserve Bank is likely to increase interest rates. The only question is when, and my suspicion is that by the end of this year, the Reserve Bank may start considering increasing interest rates. If not the end of this year, probably early. And in terms of inflation, do we see it also running away? Yes, inflation is likely to accelerate over the next couple of months. The South African economy, however, is quite weak at the moment. 
and there's not very strong consumer demand in the economy, and that will keep a bit of a lid on the inflation rate. But the reality is that the number of price increases is likely to put upward pressure on inflation. And in terms of the consumers themselves, what can they do to uh, protect themselves from the current increases and also the expected ones that are coming possibly later this year? Well, there's not much that the average consumer can do. There are only two things, really. The one is that you have to make sure that you have a proper financial planning in place. That means that you have to have a budget and retirement plans and things like that. So have proper financial planning. That's the first thing. And the second thing is make sure that you keep your job and don't put unnecessary pressure on your employer and to, for excessive wage increases. Remember, it's not only individuals that are suffering, businesses are suffering as well. David Rod is a chief economist at the financial consultancy firm Efficiency Group on the line, rather efficient group on the line with Tuto Ngobeni. South Africa's Youth of 1976 was uh, this past weekend remembered uh, through a celebration of creative expression at the annual Basho Huru Freedom Festival at the Constitution Hill in Johannesburg. Now in its sixth year, the festival showcases the youth's contemporary art, design, film, music and also provides inspirational workshops and entrepreneurial support programs for young creatives. reports. This past month marked 42 years since the 1976 Soweto uprisings. Scores of youths arrested during the 1976 protests were incarcerated in the prisons on the Constitution Hill site. This past weekend, Constitution Hill commemorated the youths of 1976 who sacrificed their lives for South Africa's freedom through its flagship youth art festival Basha Uhuru. Each year, the festival showcases contemporary art, design, film and music. It's a celebration of young South African creatives and their artistic freedom of expression. Now in its sixth year, the 2018 edition was put together by the Constitution Hill in partnership with its partners including the Department of Art, Nandos, the Gauteng Tourism Authority, as well as the Gauteng Enterprise Propeller, amongst others. Khaisang Sukete, Exhibition and Events Curator at the Constitution Hill, says the Basha Uhuru Freedom Festival not only showcases art, design, film and music, but it also provides inspirational workshops and entrepreneurial support programs for young creatives. Basha Uhuru Freedom Festival is really a creative platform set up to afford young people various opportunities in the creative industries to just um, share their work, share their work with others, uh, get to learn from other established professionals in the different industries. So this festival is an arts festival, a creative festival commemorating the youth of 1976, which is the main objective, through the arts. So um, we are commemorating um, our history of oppression through the freedom of artistic expression today. South African Tonga musician Shoma Josie was one of the performers. I really like Mbasha and I've always liked the idea behind it, the concept behind it. I like the idea of taking over spaces like Cornhill because I feel like South Africa, so much of like the spaces are actually not accessible to young people. I like the idea of bringing, like coming here and actually tearing it up because it's our country. It's like we must also enjoy this place. So I wanted to come as the ambassador of like good time to be like, yes, 
freedom and like yes so many people died for us to have this thing but I don't think they would want us to be here fighting fighting everyday struggle what about enjoying that freedom that they also fought so hard for I represent that carefree black girl I feel like that's a political statement imagine like every time when you're a black person it's always like struggle struggle fair like white people get to just enjoy and I also want to enjoy I want to say to young black people we must also enjoy we have the right and also that's what our own parents fought for for us to be able to enjoy this country there was South African song a musician Shoma Josie reporting for Channel Africa I'm Kantla Matangu in Johannesburg now, an upsurge of intercommunal violence in Ethiopia's West Guji and Gedeo regions has forced an estimated 978,000 people to flee their homes since April. The Norwegian Refugee Council, NRC, says the massive influx in a relatively short period has created a grave humanitarian crisis. The NRC is working in the affected regions, providing urgently needed relief items. As many as 793,000 people have been displaced in Gideo zone and at least 185,000 people in West Guji zone in the western part of Ethiopia. While the government and host communities have provided the majority of relief to affected communities so far, more support is required as needs rise. This crisis also adds to millions of people in need of food and other assistance due to successive years of drought. The Norwegian Refugee Council, NRC, is working in the affected regions and plans to support 21,000 people in need. The NRC is, however, worried that there is not enough resources to meet the needs. Gino Teofilo is the NRC's head of communication and advocacy for East Africa and Yemen. There are urgent humanitarian needs to help these people, and at the moment, there is an urgent urgent immediate need for shelter, for clean water, and for food, and because the needs are far greater than the resources available. There has been a call to action for funding. This has come from the government of Ethiopia together with humanitarian partners and the United Nations have been asking for $117 million, which is urgently required for the response plan for this crisis. However, at the moment, only about $7 million has been mobilized. So a major increase in funding is needed to prevent this situation. From worsening. With heavy summer rains forecast to hit between now and August, humanitarian agencies are concerned the situation will worsen, exposing already vulnerable communities to illnesses like malaria and diarrhea. The NRC maintains that while the government of Ethiopia is supporting as much as it can, the international community must do more to save lives in the East African nation. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Jane Rabutata in Johannesburg. Swiss chocolate wouldn't be Swiss chocolate without African cocoa. <laughs> you know, it's funny when you think about it that way because you realize just how important Africa is to the global economy. And as long as we are deemed to be inferior by the community out there, nothing's ever going to change. I believe it's one of the uh, ancient Greek philosophers who said that when we teach, we'll learn twice. Hello, Africa. Welcome to 1000 African Voices on Channel Africa. 1000 African Voices every Saturday morning at 9 a.m. with repeats on Sundays between 10 and 11 as well as on Monday morning between 3 and 4 Central African time. 1000 African Voices with me, Awurengwi C on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, broadcasting from an African perspective. I'm an actress, 
I'm a motivational speaker, born with albinism. Um, the nurse first asked my mother, is your husband white? My mother said, no, why are you asking me that question? When I grew up, there was no publication of person with albinism disappearing, mm. being stolen. You see, it was happening, but there was no exposure as it happening now. Hi, I'm Pule Mulebati, the presenter of the Albinism Report, a program that demystifies myths and mysticism on albinism, highlighting challenges and achievements of people with albinism. Tune into the Albinism Report on the following times. Monday, 5 past 9 in the morning to quarter to 10 Central African time. And from 5 past 10 to quarter to 11 Central African time. Tuesday at 5 past 2 in the morning to quarter to 3 Central African time. The Albinism Report, an enlightened narrative with me, Pule Mulebati, on Channel Africa from an African perspective. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's international radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. Listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Nam, kwenye line ya simu, hivi sasa, najiunga moja kwa moja. Farafina. Farafina. Terre du Soleil. Está na companhia do Serviço em Língua Portuguesa do Canal África, a voz de Renascença Africana que transmite a partir dos seus estudos centrais de Auckland Park, cidade de Johannesburg, África do Sul. Sochitika, Mu África! Informing the world about Africa, Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. On Ellen Zinzi has your news headlines. Campaigners supporting the Democratic Republic of Congo President Joseph Kabila, whom critics accuse of seeking an illegal third term in office, launched their electoral platform. At least 2,000 police officers stationed in Bokoram hit northeast Nigeria protest as they demand months of back pay. And the United Nations says more than 200,000 people have now been displaced by fighting in southern Syria. Channel Africa News, I'm Onelian Sinzi. It is 17.31 Central African Time right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa. Now, South Africa's Ministry of Health last week hosted the third BRICS TB Research Network meeting in Johannesburg with delegates from BRICS countries and the World Health Organization's Organization. rather, The meeting was part of the multi-country vision to accelerate research and innovation in TB through the BRICS cooperation mechanisms. It was also a preparatory meeting in advance of the forthcoming 
upcoming BRICS Ministers of Health meeting and the United Nations high-level meeting, which will take place this month in the country's coastal city of Durban. To speak to us more about this, we're now joined on the line by Professor Glenda Gray, who is the President of the South African Medical Research Council. Hello, thank you very much for joining us, Professor. Uh, thank you. Good afternoon. Um, now, Prof, did last week's meeting manage to meet uh, most of the objectives it was uh, set to achieve? Yes, I mean, we're very lucky. So for this initiative, we have both the political and government. We have funders and we have academics and researchers who all want to work together to try and eliminate TB. So um, it's very rare that you get the, 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 polit- the political leaders, the, the Department of Health, and researchers and funders to work together uh, to try and achieve something. So this is very exciting, and we, it's wonderful to have the leadership um, of our Director General and the Department of Health in, in orchestrating this. Oh, why did you see the need to meet before the BRICS meeting? Because we have to find new ways of eradicating or eliminating TB. And the only way you can do this is, is if the scientists and the donors are in touch with um, the needs of health departments. And so if we try and to diagnose TB, we have to work with the Department of Health to find easy tools, um, test tools that can, can be done at the point of care or in the community. And so we have to make sure that scientists are aligned um, with uh, the needs of the TB and TB and the TB and the Department of Health to make sure that we, we, we do the right research to help um, and service the citizens of South Africa and the citizens of the BRICS countries. Um, do you still there can still be innovative solutions that can be found in the fight against TB? Yes, so we still um, are trying to find a, an easy diagnostic that effectively diagnoses TB in both children and in adults. Um, we need to be able to um, find better TB drugs. The TB drugs we're using are very old and they have lots of side effects. And so we have a lot of problems keeping people on these long regimens that have that um, that make people quite ill. We also have lots of um, multi-drug resistant and extreme drug resistant TB. So we need to make sure that we are developing new drugs. We don't have an effective TB vaccine besides BCG, and so we have to work on on TB vaccination strategies. And so there's a lot of work that still needs to be done if we really want to try and eliminate TB from our countries. Apart from South Africa, how much of a concern is a TB in the rest of the BRICS countries? So TB is the biggest concern of all the BRICS countries. So if we look at our burden of disease, and the thing that unites um, Russia, Brazil, India, China, and South Africa is our high, our high burden of TB. Uh-huh. Um, and what are you hoping is going to come out of the meeting that's taking place um, later in the month? So we want to do everything from, from, from discovery to making sure that we can implement all the tools that we have at our disposal. And what we need is both the, the political will of the BRICS countries and the ability of scientists and, and providers of healthcare to come together and ensure that whatever we do, we do in, in, in unison and in synergy so that we can work together to eliminate or control TB in our countries. And so um, we need more money for research, um, both to discover vaccines and drugs and diagnostics, but also to make sure we deliver the, even our current tools in, in, at scale at, in these countries and that we learn uh, to work together. Um, there's a huge issue with, with TB and stigma, and if we don't address the issue of, the, of, of um, 
of, of stigma and we never ever get people to take the drugs. And so not only is it around basic science and discovery, but also about addressing the, the social, behavioral and the human aspects of having TB in these countries. Uh, tell us about that issue of TB and stigma. What happens? Well, in, you know, so um, if you're in Brazil or if you're in Russia, um, TB may be um, in certain target populations or vulnerable populations. And these populations, like intravenous drug users, um, they may be stigmatized already. And so having TB may further stigmatize them. In, in other parts of, of, of Africa, TB is associated with being poor or, or being HIV infected. And so you also, stig- or also get stigmatized because of that. Um, um, migrant, migrant workers uh, may get TB. And if they come into a country, they may be stigmatized and ostracized from labor. And so we usually find that TB um, affects um, uh, vulnerable groups in these countries. And unless we address issues around stigma, um, people are, would be too embarrassed or, or unlikely to come forward for, for care because they may uh, lose their jobs or they may be deported um, or they may be further stigmatized because they may have other comorbidities. Um, are there big enough budgets um, for this fight against TB? We don't have enough. We don't have enough money to propel us forward to find new drugs and to find effective vaccines. And so this is this is a huge call to the BRICS countries, saying let's let's galvanise our resources, let's work together, and make sure that the work that we do in in all of these um, areas um, is synergistic and that we don't waste money and duplicate efforts. So if we're working on a TB vaccine, let's work on a TB vaccine together. And if we're working on on drug discovery, let's work together. And so that we can evaluate and test these um, interventions in our countries because of our our TB burden. And so it's very important for us to work together um, because, um, you know, you work one works much better as a team and we we are far better to get to be successful if we are working as a team. And it also helps us um, work and develop capacity at a country level. So South Africans are, are, are great clinical researchers. Um, the Indian researchers are very good at drug discovery. Um, certain countries are very good at diagnostics. And so we can all learn together and improve our, our, our capacity to do science in these countries, particularly in mm. infectious diseases. Professor Glenda Gray, thank you very much. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much. Professor Glenda Gray there is the president of the South African Medical Research Council. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. 1938 Central African Time and it's info on channelafrica.co.za on email or Channel Africa one on Twitter. Now, governments in Africa have been urged to put up policies and legislations that allow the free flow of information on trade within countries and with each other. This is one of the recommendations that came out of the just held Southern African Structured Trade Seminar held in Livingston. Hilda Akekelo reports. Intel FC Stone Senior Vice President Stuart Ponder says there are several hindrances to market access on the continent and in the Southern African Development Community region in particular. He says one challenge that was often mentioned 
during the seminar is lack of information on when or what to buy at what time and price. He says governments should also protect the market by ensuring that contracts are adhered to no matter what circumstance. Intel FC Stone was the main sponsor of the seminar. There are some things that have been mentioned to me more than once and some of it is to do with information flow, the transparent availability of pricing information so that people can make informed decisions about when to sell, when to buy, they can see the fluctuations in the market, they can see what product costs are in different locations and choose where to, um, where to source their business. I think there is a need for government to both play an active role in creating an environment where people can trade confidently and also to step back in a way from some of the interventions that inhibit trade. We've heard about people who entered into contracts with clients in other countries and then found that government regulation or tariffs or whatever have interfered with that free flow of trade. So there is a role for government to play and that's part of what we're looking to do. Host country Zambia has expressed optimism that the listing of the Zambian maize on the Johannesburg Stock Exchange will greatly improve prices for local farmers. Zambia Commodity Exchange, Zamex Executive Director Jacob Mwale says discussions between the JSE and Zambia have been going on for some time but with the help of the USAID, the Zambian grain will now be exposed to a larger market. The Commodity Exchange is a Zambian marketplace that brings buyers and sellers together. And Ms. Mwale says through the structured trade system and market instruments, national food security is assured. So when we say we're selling grade A of maize or soya or B1, wheat or B2, it must be sitting in a warehouse such that when a buyer has moved the money through the exchange, the commodity or the warehouse receipt can move to a buyer. So that's the assurance we bring this. Standards, transparency, price discovery, people can see the movement on the prices on the platform and they can, with that mechanism, be able to plan. The discussions we had here and which we have had for, for some time with the Johannesburg Stock Exchange is a future Zambian grain contract on the JSC. That should be able to beam future prices in terms of all commodities. So that helps everyone in the value chain to plan. We are ready to roll them out on the ground and you'll be seeing more promotions being done with the support of USAID and other relevant ministries who are working with the Minister of Finance, Minister of Agriculture, which is our principal minister and the Minister of Commerce. And Dr. Rafael Karuaihe, head of commodities at the Johannesburg Stock Exchange, says one of the challenges the JSE-ZAMEX partnership will resolve country-to-country -country regulations on the importation of grain. Actually, the bulk of South African maize is what we call GMO, genetically modified maize, which most of the African countries do not actually allow. So it's, sometimes it's very difficult for us to import maize from South Africa into Zambia. Although countries like Namibia and Botswana, they do actually import from South Africa. But Zambian maize, which is non-GM, it's a sought-after commodity in many parts of the world. And so even that would be able to attract a premium, if you were to import that into South Africa. The only problem, again, rightly, is the border controls and all this. We are partnering with an institution like Zamez, the Zambian Commodity Exchange, and through that, commodity can then move out of the Zambian warehouses, either to Malawi, either to Zimbabwe, or to South Africa. The seminar attracted a cross-section of agribusiness stakeholders, 
One of the participants was Amil Shera, a Zambian market trader under Momba Investments. He hopes this effort is for real, saying he has seen projects come with a lot of promise, only to fade away, leaving the poor farmers stranded. I'm from the grassroots, and I think it's better you start from the uh, from the bottom, and it can grow up bigger. Then you want to implement something from the top and then it might not work out. We have seen a lot of projects coming and going, a lot of funding came in these projects and they are not existing. So if the big players want to do it in big style, there is no problem. For that concern, Stuart Ponder says Intel FC Stone is here to stay. We are not just in this for one event, but we are absolutely passionately interested in seeing these markets open up. We see business opportunities for ourselves to come and be involved, bringing our experience in helping to manage price risk, helping to bring more stability to trade, helping to create an environment where bigger investment can flow in. This is part of what we're looking to do. For Channel Africa, I'm Hilda Kekelwa in Livingstone, Zambia. And with Senema Zabula has your economic news. Good evening. Uh, thanks, as Pumalele. The European Union has warned uh, the United States that almost 300 billion U.S. dollars of its exports could be targeted if it imposes tariffs on cars from Europe. President Donald Trump has applied additional levies on the import of steel and aluminium from the EU. The BBC's Adam Fleming reports. The warning is contained in a document submitted by the EU to a US investigation into the feasibility of applying additional tariffs on cars imported from the rest of the world. The EU calculates it could trigger retaliatory measures on $290 billion of American exports, a fifth of the total. Brussels also says that 120,000 American jobs are reliant on European car companies operating there, with another 420,000 indirectly linked. Libya's crucial oil exports from its production heartland ground to a halt in a financial showdown between the country's rival political administrations. The crisis has slashed production, previously estimated at a million barrels per day, by 850,000 barrels per day. The National Oil Corporation says all exports have been suspended from the oil crescent in the north. East Libya after operations were frozen at terminals of Al Hagira and Zaitina. South Africa's finance minister Nsanlane says he's confident that revenue collection agency SARS will be able to meet their tax collecting target for 2018. Nene officially launched the 2018 tax season in Johannesburg. SARS expects to collect 100 billion US dollars for this tax period. I'm very confident. I have confidence in them. I have confidence in the team and I have confidence in all the initiatives that are in place to go all out there and get the 1345. It's for that reason that I said I don't want to stretch it beyond the 1345. I'm saying just 1345 because in order for us to meet uh, our target also, SARS and South Africans need to meet their targets. I think that's part of our charter as well. Ugandans are devising ways of evading the social media tax that came into effect on Sunday. 
Several internet users have reportedly resorted to virtual private network VPN to bypass paying the daily access duty charge on over-the-top or OTT social media platforms such as WhatsApp, Facebook and Twitter. In late May, the Ugandan parliament passed a legislation that introduced a tax on the use of so-called over-the-top social media platforms offering voice and messaging services. Users are required to pay five American cents a day to access any of the more than 60 such OTT platforms. According to lawyer Freddy Muchengwa, there has been a mixed reaction to the introduction to the new laws. Overall, in terms of implementation of the tax, some people are paying um, the 200 shillings per day. Uh, which is about uh, 6,000 shillings a month. That is about uh, uh, $2 a month. Uh, others are not paying because they are bypassing payment via VPN. Um, but um, I'm also hearing that uh, the government would like to disable the VPN uh, access. But on the illegal side, I, I have seen today one case has been filed in the constitutional court challenging the constitutionality of the law imposing the law imposing that social media tax and the mobile money tax so it is still early days but uh, generally there's a lot of uh, activity which has arisen as a result of the implementation of that new tax Meanwhile, Facebook has revealed the businesses it gave special rights to access users' data. Facebook says that 61 companies have been given a temporary exemption to block on apps accessing details about users' friends. It identified a further 52 companies that it allowed to tap its data to recreate Facebook-like experiences. Facebook had faced criticism in the U.S. after emerging after it emerged that several Chinese companies, including Huawei, have been included in the Facebook experiences list. This is despite the fact that Facebook has not sought explicit consent from its users to do so. To Egypt now, Italian oil and gas group Eni has denied media reports that it has made a major new discovery in Egypt. Its CEO, Claudio Descalzi, says there are prospects and new geological structures in Egypt, but the company has not discovered anything yet. Eni said last week it will begin drilling an exploratory well at its newer field in Egypt's North Sinai in two months. We look now at your financial indicators. Uh, the U.S. dollar trading at 10.25, Botswana Pula, 9.93, Zambian Quarter. Greek's currency say uh, the dollar stronger at 3.87, Brazilian Real at 62.76, Russian Rubu at 68.30, Indian Rupee at 6.63, Chinese Yuan and at 13.7 against the South African Rand. European currencies, the dollar weaker at 75 pence to the British pound and 86 cents against the euro. The commodities market gold $1,250, platinum $845 per fine ounce. Brent crude oil has gone up from Friday's close of $75. Now it's at $78.20 per barrel. And that could explain why there will be a petrol price hike in uh, places like South Africa and other emerging market economies. And that's how it's looking. Thank you very much, Usani. It is now time for Sports News. Here's Masibodi.
Good evening, sports fans, and starting off with football news, Nigerian Football Federation President Amaju Pinek has apologized to President Mohamedou Buhari as well as Nigerians for the Super Eagles group um, stage exit from the 2018 FIFA World Cup. Now, the Eagles crushed out at the group stages after going 2-1 to Argentina in a winner-takes-all game in St. Petersburg last Tuesday. Now, writing on the Federation's website, Pinek issued an apology for the turn-off events and reiterated that the Super Eagles will come back stronger for the 2022 FIFA World Cup. And looking at our World Cup action at the moment, Brazil are into the last eight of the World Cup after beating Mexico by two goals to nil, rejoicing right there as the 90 minutes come to an end. Now back home, Ajax Cape Town CEO Ari Ifastiasho says he's very pleased with the ruling regarding the Tandai Ndoro eligibility matter. Judge Dennis Fisher ruled in favour of the Urban Warriors regarding the ongoing Ndoro saga. The previous ruling of SAFA arbitrator William Mugari has been rescinded with the matter handed over to the FIFA Players Status Committee. Now the outcome means that Ajax Cape Town will be reinstated into 15th position on the Absa Premiership block standings for the 2017-2018 season. Ajax were docked seven points for fielding Ndoro after the Zimbabwean international represented three different teams in one season. Now the judge also ruled that the recently completed uh, PCL, um, PSL promotion and relegation playoffs which incl- um, involved Platinum Stars, Jomo Cosmos as well as Black Leopards were now and void. Now to cycling news, Chris Frome's anti-doping case has been dropped by cycling's world governing body. The four-time Tour de France winner was under investigation after more than the allowed level of legal asthma drug salbutamol was found in his urine. Now the World Anti-Doping Agency, which worked closely with the UCI, has accepted there was no breach and recommended the case to be dropped immediately. Now Frome says uh, he was grateful and relieved that the matter had come to an end. And finally, in tennis news, Roger Federer booked his spot in the second round of Wimbledon courtesy of a 6-1-6-2-6-4 victory over Serbian Dusan Lajovic in the another match. U.S. Open champion Sloane Stevens tumbled out of the Wimbledon on day one today, looking rusty and all sorts in her 6-1-6-3 defeat by Croatia's Donna Vekic. That's why sports news at the sound. I'm back with more sports news just before 8 p.m. Central African time. Channel Africa brings you wall-to-wall coverage of the 2018 FIFA World Cup Finals in Russia. Visit our dedicated World Cup page on www.channelafrica.org.za for in-depth coverage which includes previews, reviews, analysis, breaking news and a podcast of latest interviews. We will also bring you the very latest news from Russia with our Nigerian correspondent Tony Ubani and the BBC's reporters in our daily hourly sports bulletins and on the Africa at Play sports show on Friday, Saturday and Sunday from 5pm to 6pm Central African time. Channel Africa, your home of the 2018 FIFA World Cup Finals. is Africa Digest.
1756 Central African Time recapping our top stories. 22 African leaders gather in Mauritania in the capital for the 31st summit of the African Union. South Africans had to feel a pinch with another fuel hike. That wraps up Africa Digest for this hour. From myself, Spumelele Zondi, producer Luanda Maome, technical producer Adrian Kenny, and the rest of the team, thank you for listening. Send us your emails on info at channelafrica.co.za, WhatsApp plus 27763003327, plus 27763003327 on WhatsApp. And on Twitter, it is Channel Africa One. We leave you with a different by Shekina and Marishan. What you have If you can kill it